chapter 20. This is the last in our series on the Ten Commandments. I know it's hot today. They used to tell us in campus ministry that if you want to um, make a place feel like it's where everybody wants to be, then you actually turn the temperature up, not down in large group. We did not intentionally make it so hot in here, but you feel free to fan yourself off. We'll have fans, and um, we'll try to keep it as cool as possible. So I'm in a black robe, and so of all of us, I perhaps am the most to be pitied. Please give your attention now to God's Word. This morning we will be reading from Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you now take your word and would you change our hearts through it? For you intend your word to change us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I named her Midnight. She was a black lab that I received when I was a young boy. She went everywhere I did. As a young child, this dog was um, the greatest thing that I'd ever had. She was awesome. I would walk her down the street. I wouldn't need to use a leash. She would just stay right next to me. When I came home from school, she was at the gate waiting for me to come. She always loved to play. She was never in a bad mood. I was her favorite person in the world. And as a young child, this dog, this black lab named Midnight, actually gave me an incredible sense of confidence, joy, love. She was always there. Until one day, she began to cough. <coughs> and if you've ever heard a dog cough, you know that it's like, it's awful. They can't talk to you like a young child can. You don't know what's going on. So we took Midnight, this black lab that I love so much, down to Dr. Riddle's house, who was the neighborhood vet. And we put Midnight on the table, and Dr. Riddle ran some tests on Midnight. And he looked at us, and he said that uh, she had uh, this funny Sunday name called Defaria Emitus. I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, you see that she got bit by a mosquito months ago, and that tiny little parasites got into her body through that mosquito bite, and those little parasites went through her bloodstream, and they camped out in her heart, and they gave her heartworms. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, it means that she has thousands and thousands of heartworms in her heart, and she, if we don't take drastic action, is going to die. I was devastated. Reading the Ten Commandments is like every one of us going to Dr. Riddle and having some tests done and realizing that in each of our hearts, no matter how holy we may be or holy we may think we are, we all have heartworms because not one of us can read these Ten Commandments and not see the parasites that are deep beneath the surface. And the principle of the text is this, what lives in the heart never stays hidden. Like heartworms, the Ten Commandments reveal to us what exists in the depths of our heart. And though we may have been bitten many, many months ago, slowly but surely, the Ten Commandments are the diagnostic tests that reveal to us that we have a real heart problem. And more so than ever, you find your heart problem revealed in the Tenth Commandment. Because the Tenth Commandment 
is linked twice in the New Testament back to the first. The first one, I'm the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Is general and it's internal, right? The tenth, you shall not covet, is general, but it's also deeply internal. And so this morning we're going to look at this principle that what lives in the heart never stays hidden. And we have to see how the Holy Spirit goes at us with a diagnosis of our problem of sin. And he moves us toward health by the power of his very spirit. Now, what exactly is coveting? In, in Hebrew, this word coveting is kamad, which means to desire or to delight in. If you put a knot in front of it, it means to over-desire or to lust after something. It's interesting, you know, the word in Arabic that's a transliteration of this word is, um, sounds just like it does in Hebrew. It um, is chamedah, which I'll say that again, mahamedah, sounds familiar. The word Muhammad comes from the same root as this Hebrew word, to desire, to covet is the Hebrew term. It's an all-inclusive term that means not just to long for something that somebody else has, but it even means to long for somebody else. You know, what's the difference between coveting and envy? You know, people might say to me as a pastor, you know, I, I really struggle with envy. But rarely do they say, I struggle with coveting. What's the difference between envy and coveting? This commandment asks for us to avoid both. To envy is to desire someone else. I desire someone else's position. I am bitter because they got a better lot in life. That's what it means to envy. But to covet means to covet something else that somebody else has. So envy is desiring somebody else's position or their very situation in life. But to covet is to desire an inanimate object. But regardless of if you struggle with envy or with coveting, they both are included in this commandment, thou shalt not covet. Coveting is different also than jealousy because coveting is wanting what somebody else has. Jealousy, jealousy is wanting back what somebody else has taken from you. So, for example, if all of you men out there are looking at my hairline and saying, oh, I wish I could be bald too, you're you're coveting, right, what is somebody else's. But if I took your hair club for men card and I stuck it in my wallet and I now had access to all the access of those who have a full, thick-headed set of whatever, a thick head of hair, then that would be jealousy. Now, the reason why we talk about envy and coveting and jealousy, we, it's helpful to know the specific diagnosis that you struggle with as a Christian. Because all too often, we go through our confession of faith or our confession of sin, and we just say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I screw up. But friends, sin is vivid and specific. So also should your confession be. Thomas Brooks, an old English Puritan, wrote a book uh, many years ago. Um, and in this book, he gives a catalog of specific sins. He gives us 
12 different kinds of depression, eight different kinds of sin, and then seven different remedies. Why does he do that? He does that because he is trying to help us become good soul physicians of our hearts. So it's important as you come to a commandment like thou shalt not covet, which is very general, and try to tap down into it as specific and as vividly as we can. So before we come to the supper, we're going to do that. We're going to look at it with three headings. What you have, why you want, and how to enjoy who you are. What you have, why do you want, and how do you enjoy who you are. So let's dive in together. First, what you have. The most powerful tool as a Christian against fighting sin, mortifying sin, putting sin to death, is taking a spiritual inventory of what you have. And there is perhaps no greater chapter in all of the Bible to take an inventory of what you have than Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And we're just going to walk through it before, because before we talk about coveting and how bad we are as a people and how susceptible we are to coveting what somebody else has, you have to recognize what you have. For every one look at yourself, we must take ten looks at Jesus. And we sometimes become very good as Reformed Evangelical Christians at taking inventory of our hearts and just concluding, yeah, sinner. Yeah, broken jacked up, a mess. Yes, I need counseling. Yes, I know I fell in sin again. Listen, the way you fight your generic confession of sin is by being specific with what you have in Jesus. So, because you have a spiritual insecurity, because you want to claim all of God's love through your self-effort, because each of you, no matter how long you may have been a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, you may feel this more than ever. In fact, often non-Christians feel this more palpably than Christians. You have an insecurity because you have confined yourself to a room that's all self-effort. And you don't open the shades of the Father's love to allow the rays of the beams of His love for you to warm your face. And so, in Romans chapter 8, let's look and see what you have. If you are in Christ, verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Why do you covet? Because you don't want to be judged by other people as anything less than your image of what the best life now might be. But here in Romans chapter 8, though it's hard to believe it because you're confined by your own desire to please God through your effort, the rays of the sunlight show us that you have no condemnation if you're in Christ by faith alone. Not only has your sin been removed, but your penalty also has been removed. Your shame and your guilt, your debt and your destruction has been taken away. Just like if you've ever painted an old wooden fence and you take off the lacquer and the polish with the power washer. Jesus has taken all of your sin away, and he's painted you spotless, not one blemish. You are pure and righteous, so that when the Father looks at you, your heavenly Father doesn't see us in all of our messiness. He sees the image of Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, then you have a record of his righteousness given to you. 
Look down at verse 10. But in, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. Listen, if you're like me, then in those moments when you see somebody else's lot in life, for me it's often somebody who's got a great church or who lives in a certain place or who's got a town that has a certain layout, whenever I begin to covet, it's like Jesus reminds me, listen, the grass is not greener, Blake. There is no condemnation for you. And when the Father looks at you, he doesn't care where you live. He's not judging you by the size of your house or your portfolio or how good you preach or how big your church is. You're covered with the record of Jesus' own righteousness. Is that enough for you? Third, if you are in Christ, then you have been adopted as his son. Verse 15 of chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The greatest confinement for a Christian is because of their inability to recognize that they have a Father who loves them. Most of us as Christians become believers. We rest in Jesus' righteousness because we know we're sinners and we need the love of God. But sometime early in our walk, we forget that the same means by which we are justified, namely by faith, is the same means through which we are also sanctified. By coming again and again and again to the truth that your Father in heaven loves you. And so every one of you can look to your heavenly Father and you can say to him, Happy Father's Day. Every week of worship is a Father's Day, not just where we give gifts to our Father, but as Christians, He pours down His blessings upon us. Your Father loves you. Do you know that? In Luke chapter 15, there is a story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the prodigal sons, right? The younger brother who ran off at his father's inheritance, and the older brother who was always at the house, dutifully obeying the Father. And what was the problem in that parable? The problem is that Jesus was trying to help the Christians, the, the Pharisees, rather, identify not with the younger brother, but with the older one. And so many of us have to recognize again and again and again. We tend to say, you never threw a party for me. How come I have to live with this income? How come I have to live in this place? How come I have to live with this person? And discontentment becomes so subtle, it starts out like a mosquito bite in a black Labrador. But man, it sends parasites to your heart. And the antidote is to recognize that you are a child of the living God. John Owen, who lived from 1616 to 1683, was a 17th century Puritan. And he says that many dark and disturbing thoughts are apt to arise in this thing. Few can carry up their hearts and minds to the height by faith so as to rest their souls in the love of the Father. They live below it in the troublesome region of hopes and fears, storms and clouds. All here is serene and quiet, but how to attain this pitch 
they know not. You've been adopted as his child. Verse 18, or verse 16 and 17 of chapter 8 says, Not only have you been adopted, but you have received the Father's estate. Everything the Father has is yours. God gives you everything that he has. We're not prosperity gospel preachers. He doesn't give it to you now. He gives it to you already, but not yet. So there's not a boat in your Bible. There's not a house in your Bible. But you know what? There's a promise in your Bible. And that promise is that I will satisfy the longings of all of your hearts. And you see through a glass dimly. You see in part now, but you will see in full when you are glorified. That's why the sermon's called Wanting What You Have Already, But Not Yet. You have what you want, but not yet fully until Christ comes to make all things new at the end of time. And if you're going to fight covetousness, you must go back to the inventory of what you have in Jesus. Not only have you received the Father's estate, verse 16 and 17, but you will be conformed to the image of His Son, verse 29. Sometimes in fits and starts, if you're like me, sometimes it's very slow, but you will gradually become more and more like Jesus as you grow older. It's inevitable that you begin to reflect your Father, just like a young child begins to reflect his dad, his gait, his mannerisms, his food preferences so also you in time begin to reflect the love, the tenderness, the care of your Father. Just like those members of Emmanuel AME Church, our God is a hospitable God who welcomes people no matter where they're from. Here is a young man who was of a totally different color. They didn't care. They welcomed him into their Bible study. And in so doing, they had no idea that they let the devil in that Bible study. God is hospitable. And just like that AME church, Jesus Christ welcomed through the incarnation the sins of the world to come upon his shoulders so that he could bear your sins and mine and die the death that you deserve to die. You have the Father's complete estate given to you. You will become more like the image of his Son. Verse 30 of chapter 8, I don't want to belabor the point, but you, verse, you'll be glorified. You will be justified. Those who he justifies, he also glorifies. You are justified. Not you will be. You are if you're in Christ. The Father looks at you and sees you completely holy, completely perfect, just like his son. If you believe instantaneously and you will be glorified at the end, you will have everything you've ever dreamt of because Jesus is enough. And lastly, verse 35 through 38, I just want you to... Close your eyes and listen to this verse. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, you have all of the love of your Heavenly Father. Do you know that? 
In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says that hypocrisy and anxiety come from the same root. It's refusing to recognize that you have the love of your heavenly Father. He loves you. He is not angry with you. And the way to fight indwelling sin, to be vicious in going after it, is first to recognize the love of your heavenly Father. Otherwise, you will grind yourself into the dirt in condemnation and self-pity. Do you know that he loves you? That he holds out the truth of the gospel for you this morning and says, you cannot earn my love. You instead need to trade your pleasing me mentality for trusting me. You can't please me. Jesus pleases me. So you just need to trust me. When Lauren and I were, um, when, we had, when Andrew and Annie were young, we had young children, we used to take their toys, unbeknownst to them, and we would give them to them in stages. And so we'd have like boxes that were like spring toys, fall toys, winter toys. And so in the summer, we'd let them play with their summer toys. And what happened is that by the end of the summer, they began to get more and more frustrated with their summer toys. Like, these are boring. They're getting old. We're sick of using them. They're tired. And one day, we would be like the coolest parents ever. We'd go up to the attic and we'd, or to the basement in New Jersey, and we'd pull out, like, the, the fall toys. And we would pack up the summer toys, and we would open the box of fall toys, and you would have thought they had four birthdays. It was awesome. And they rediscovered these toys that they had, and they would play. And it was beautiful. It was like the best day ever of the season. Some of you need to go this week and reread Romans chapter 8. And like a young child who these toys have been hidden because you've confined yourself to self-effort to try to please God. And you need to reread what he says to you. These are yours. They're free. They're for you. And he loves you. Have you forgotten your father's love? If you have, oh, you will be subject to covetousness. You will be a sitting duck. Because what lives in the heart never stays hidden. Now, why do you want what you want? Well, the elders and I went on a retreat a couple of weeks ago, and on the land where we were, we pulled up down this dirt road, and there were like 20 pickups. You would have thought it was like a pickup convention. And all these men in hard hats and cowboy hats were out there, and they were in this big field, and they, there was a backhoe, and there were these men digging up this massive pipe that was about the diameter of my wingspan. And the pipe had a leak in it. And the way they found that leak is they sent what's called a rabbit. Have you ever heard of this? Those of you who work in petroleum, they sent a rabbit down this pipe and it goes hundreds of miles. And this rabbit, it's called, not a real rabbit, don't worry. This rabbit determines the thickness of the edges of this pipe and knows precisely where there are leaks. And at this Point, there was a leak, and this mixture, this gas, this diesel-like substance was leaking. And so they took this massive pipe, and they dug it out of the earth, and they replaced it with a pipe so that the pipeline could flow freely from Kansas all the way down into Tulsa. And the Ten Commandments come for us like sending the rabbit down the pipe. This commandment of covetousness is like helping you assess where the leaky pipe is in your own spirituality. And to get there, yes, you have to recognize what you have in Jesus, but you also have to recognize why you want what you want. And here's how sin works, the pathology of sin 101. 
In Micah chapter 2, kashab is the word that is used there to devise or to plan in your heart's wickedness. And the Lord says in Micah chapter 2, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, feel free to. It says, woe to those who devise wickedness. That is, the word devise means to imagine, to plot out, to plan. On, uh, they work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their, the power of their hand to do it. The first place sin takes its root in your heart and in your mind is always in your imagination. This is where the Puritans were so helpful to us because they helped us understand the pathology of sin. The imagination is always where it begins. And the imagination never stays just in the imagination. It becomes something that they, they think about on their beds. They work evil on their bed, and when the morning dawns, they perform it. It's quick because it goes from your imagination to a lingering thought. So if you were to diagram this on your bulletin, you would say imagination, lingering thought. It always goes north. And your lingering thought then gives birth to what? To an affection. What if that were true? That would be awesome. Then I'd be content. Then I'd be satisfied. And that affection gives birth to what? Gives birth to your action. Imagination, lingering thoughts, affection, uh, action. Always travels that way. What begins in your imagination, you must be able to catch when you're tempted to sin at the earliest onset. And to know that, you must know yourself. In Ephesians uh, 5.3, Paul says that sin is rebellion. And he says in Ephesians in chapter 4 that this word, same word in the Old Testament for covet, is epithumia, an over-desire. That is, sin is taking something that is good and over-desiring it. It's looking at something that is fine in its own way. Alcohol, it's fine to have a drink of alcohol. Don't abuse it. Having money, it's fine to have money. Don't be owned by it. It's fine to have a, a beautiful spouse. Don't let her become your God or him your God. Anything can become a sin. And the same word for covet in the Old Testament is the word epithumia in the New. And Paul says explicitly in Colossians chapter 3, he gives you a list of what ruins you, and he says, and covetousness is idolatry. What happens in the imagination? Becomes a lingering thought, becomes an affection of your heart, moves into an action. And our jobs as believers by the power of the Holy Spirit is to try to cut off that pathway of sin as early and as often as possible. That's why we have confession of sin in church. Not because we want it to be rote, but because we want it to be incredibly personal. There's all kinds of examples in the Old Testament to illustrate this. Achan, in Joshua chapter 7, he saw the wedge of gold in the Babylonian garment. He lingered on it. He thought, what would it be like if I had that? He took it. Ahab, in 1 Kings chapter uh, 21, saw Naboth vineyard. What did he do? He said, I don't want to be the king of Israel. I want to be a king of Egypt. I don't want to 
I don't want a vineyard. I want a vegetable garden. I want to turn this vineyard into a vegetable garden because Egypt has these beautiful vegetable gardens, and I want to have that. And so with the help of his wife Jezebel, what did they do? They imagined what it would be like to have that vineyard. They lingered on it. They used the power that was at their disposal to let that become an affection of their heart. And then they put Naboth at the front of the line and had him unjustly stoned. And they took the vineyard and they turned it into a vegetable garden. And one generation later, when Ahab's son died, guess where they threw his body, by the way? In that vineyard. What gives birth in the imagination? Imagination's good, but don't let a desire become an over-desire. Travels up to a lingering thought, then becomes an affection, then becomes an action. And if you're going to know how to fight sin, you've got to recognize the pathology of sin. In Hosea chapter 4, Hosea gives this account of all the idols of Ephraim, which is a, another name for Israel. And he says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone, the Lord says. If you want to be joined to your idols, God will, if that's what you want, he'll leave you alone. If you're in Jesus, then he can't because you're his child. But some of you have been left alone. You want independence from God, and he will give you that request. That's exactly what happens in hell. You get exactly what you want, and that is independence, because on your own, you will destroy yourself. And C.S. Lewis describes hell as people who live in this cul-de-sac, and as time goes on, their houses get further and further apart so that you can barely see the glimmer of the neighbor's porch light. Friends, idolatry is so subtle. But we've got to be a church that understands the pathology of sin and is able to freely talk about it together. Now, lastly, how do you enjoy who you are? Very briefly. The greatest gift that the elders of this church and I can help you with is to help you be okay with who you are and how God has made you. Because, friends, you've got gifts. Billford's got gifts that I don't have. John's got gifts that I don't have. Nick has got gifts that I don't have. Paul has gifts that I don't have. I have gifts that they don't have. We need each other. And if you begin to compare yourself to one another, you're short-circuiting the way that God has made you. He has made you special. He has knit you together in his mother's womb. He has given you everything that you need. And you need to learn to be okay with that. Most of you struggle with being okay with you. I struggle with being okay with me. Like when, For the longest time, I thought ministry was always successful based upon my own experience and so we had you know I wanted to have you know 45 small groups because the church that I went to when I was younger had a bunch of small groups I wanted to have certain things about worship because the church that I grew up in had certain things about worship listen most of you compare yourself to other people through your own experience but God has made you you and you need to be okay with that Keep your life free of the love of money and be content with what you have. For God says, never will I leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. Covetousness is subtle, and it will destroy you. And you must be able to take a spiritual inventory of your heart. And you must be able to regularly practice coming to grips with the heartworms that you have and that I have. And to subjecting ourselves to the Holy Spirit to help seal us off and cleanse us 
of those sins in time, though we will never be cleansed of them completely until glory. And the reason you come to worship every week is not because you're checking off a box for Jesus to love you more. It's to remind you that if you don't continually come to repentance, you will die. Friends, Jesus Christ loves you so much that he gives you everything that you want already but not yet. Do you know that? Let's repent of our idolatrous hearts and our covetous nature. Let's allow these Ten Commandments to be a diagnosis of our affections so that we may look to Jesus and say, who do we have in heaven but you? The earth has nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my life. And like my young black lab when I was a young child, you will allow the medicine of the gospel to heal you. And sure enough, this precious little lab, Midnight, lived for many, many years. And you will grow in joy as you come to repentance, as you come to faith, as you recognize that your Father loves you more than you can ever dream. Know that and be at peace. And confess to the Lord your envious and covetous hearts, knowing that Jesus has given you everything that you want already and not yet. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you will help us to take regular inventory of what we have in Jesus. That you have made us heirs of your covenant of grace. We are children of the King. Everything that we could ever dream or desire is at our disposal already but not yet. And Lord, help us to see with spiritual eyes. For though you do not promise to change our circumstances, in fact, it may get harder. You do promise to be with us. And you give us the promise that one day we will be glorified with you, that we will bask physically in the presence of your love. And so until then, you give us corporate worship to remind us that there is therefore now no condemnation for us. And that we can look to your smiling face on this Father's Day and say thank you that we have a heavenly Father who loves us, who will not abandon us, who is always with us, and who smiles on us. Thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.